Welcome to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. Giving you the latest evidence-based research and cutting-edge insights for elite mental and physical performance. He's connecting you directly with the world's leading experts and coaches. Here's your host, Dr. Bugs. Hey everyone, this is Season 5, Episode Number 6 of the Performance Nutrition Podcast. I hope you're enjoying the start to your summer. I hope your athletes or your clients are getting back into training, getting back into a normal rhythm uh, with their lives. Uh, I'm just getting back actually from the Olympic basketball qualifying tournament with Canada Basketball over on the West Coast in Victoria, BC. And unfortunately, you know, Team Canada Basketball, we fell short of qualifying for the Olympics, getting upset by the Czech Republic. Um, but a lot of lessons learned for our young squad. You know, it's two steps forward and one step back. And so I'm sure like a lot of you listening in that are aiming towards certain goals or your athletes are, you know, what do you do when you're faced with a roadblock, a challenge like that? Well, you know, you keep showing up to work the next day, you keep grinding and you keep moving forward towards those goals. And so in the backdrop of that, today's podcast is all about low energy availability, which again, in a tournament setting is something we worry about. But of course, over the course of weeks, months and a season become even more potentially problematic. It's also a fascinating topic because in today's general population, two-thirds of the population are overweight and obese, and so struggling with overfueling. On the flip side, when we look at athletes underfueling, this is something that we might miss, and it actually has significant repercussions not only for training but also overall health as well. So in this episode, you'll hear from Dr. Jose Areta, who currently works as a lecturer in sports nutrition and metabolism at the School of Sport and Exercise Sciences at Liverpool John Morris University. Jose's primary interest is in the area of training nutrient interactions, investigating how to manipulate the ingestion of carbs, fats, and protein around training to optimize physical performance and health. In this episode today, Jose will define low energy availability. He'll also share some of his research and insights on potential novel biomarkers to identify low energy availability. Things like T3 hormones, leptin, bone biomarkers, do they truly predict, may they predict low energy availability? He'll also touch on the impact of female hormones in the menstrual cycle, the effects of protein and carbohydrates on states of low energy availability, and just a whole bunch more. So I think you'll really enjoy this episode. Again, I find this whole topic really, really fascinating. All right, before we start, this episode is brought to you by Athlete Evolution performance nutrition education for strength and conditioning coaches, nutritionists, and practitioners looking to make a bigger impact with their athletes and clients. Athlete Evolution is excited to announce a free performance nutrition summit this fall with a special focus on American football and basketball, as well as, of course, athlete health and mindset. So if you'd like to join in, head over to athleteevolution.org. That's athleteevolution.org to register. Or you can head over to drbubs.com forward slash forward slash athletes, and you can register there as well. And you'll be the first to hear who's speaking, when it drops, and all that good stuff. Awesome. Let's do this. Season five, episode number six with Dr. Jose Areta. Enjoy. Jose, appreciate you taking the time today. Oh, thank you very much, Mark. It's really nice to be here. And yeah, I appreciate the fact that you invite me to share, you know, the little knowledge or as much knowledge as I have in this, in this area. So it's really a pleasure. Well, listen, I'm, I'm excited to be diving into this topic of low energy availability as well, because it's such a um, hot topic at the moment with trying to fuel, especially in an Olympic year when athletes are really pushing themselves. But before we dive into that, maybe you can tell 
uh, listeners and viewers a little bit more about yourself and give us a little whirlwind tour of, of, of what's gotten you to uh, Liverpool John Morris. Yes, of course. Uh, so I'm Jose Areta. Um, currently, I'm a lecturer in sports nutri nutrition in uh, Liverpool John Moores University. I've been here for now almost like three years, um, but I ended up here after going uh, around the world a little bit. So nice. I'm originally from Argentina, trained as a biologist with a minor in zoology. And then I specialized in sports nutrition in, uh, in Australia. So I had the opportunity to do a, like, a really cool PhD there, <clears throat> working in a... I was based in Melbourne, but doing a bit of work at the Australian Institute of Sport as well, like doing experimental trials there. So basically I got like a lot of training in, um, but basically working in a, in a lab with humans and running <laughs> yes, trials and, and, and so on, and understanding, you know, what science, like proper science was all about. So I absolutely loved it, had the experience there to work with John Holly, Louis Burke, and Vernon Coffey, and you know, a lot of uh, really good researchers from whom exactly. I learned a lot. So that was really, really great. Um, so my, my PhD, you know, was more focused on the effect of protein intake and how to maximize uh, myofibrillar protein synthesis. And how already back then I was very interested in the effect of low energy availability. And one, one of the studies of my, my PhD was on, on that topic. Okay. But you know, when you're a PhD student, you're kind of dancing with like different topics. You don't really know what you like, and then you explore different things. And so I went to do a, a postdoc in a Norwegian School of Sport Sciences in, in Oslo afterwards. Um, and I, I was really, really interested in the effect of, or you know, how skeletal muscle glycogen is, is uh, used, so the dynamics of skeletal muscle glycogen. And at one point, I also became really interested in the, in the interaction between energy availability and um, the muscle glycogen, because I think these two things, you know, are kind of interrelated. Yeah. Um, so I kind of started working on that during, during my postdoc. And first, I fo really focused on the effect of uh, exercise intensity and duration on skeletal muscle glycogen. And that led also to do a study on looking at, you know, differentiating the effect of energy availability and muscle glycogen. And, you know, my postdoc at the end came to an end, it was three years postdoc, uh, do a few things there, and then the, the opportunity for lectureship came up. And so I came to, to, to Liverpool, where, you know, when you start a, a new position at the university, you kind of have to say, okay, what do I want to do? Well, how do I want to develop? And so on. And I really found this, this uh, topic really, really interesting. So I've been focusing on this since, uh, since I arrived here, really. So we, we have a few lines of work in this area. Nice. I was going to say literally around the world from Argentina to Australia to Norway yeah, to, uh, yeah. to Liverpool. That's pretty cool. And, uh, you know, in our discussion today about low energy availability, a few years back, I had uh, Jen Saigo on who walked us through some of the research at that point. Um, but to get everyone up to speed, can we do a quick you know, definition of low energy availability? And then we can jump into some of the, the areas that you've brought about in, your, in one of your recent papers on, uh, on low energy availability in, in female athletes. Yeah, of course. Uh, I suppose that uh, what is important to understand first is like what what energy availability is and mm. then we can say what is low energy availability so um you know broadly speaking energy availability <clears throat> is the uh, the energy uh, from dietary intake that is available for physiological processes what does this mean is that, that we basically eat food that has energy and when we subtract the energy uh, from exercise, uh, the energy used towards uh, the, 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 the exercise or the energy cost of exercise, that energy available is the energy availability for ma maintenance of the 
the, the, yeah. the rest of the stuff to keep us alive and pump the heart and ventilate the lungs and all that good stuff, right? Yes, yes, exactly. And, you know, <clears throat> this is the, the, the current definition that we use for uh, energy availability as it's applied in, in humans. It's, it's not what originally was uh, def defined us when, we, when it was um, defined in the, in the 80s for using like rodent models where they, they consider energy availability, any, any energy available in the, in the um, rodents for, for energy. So in, inclusive the, the fat stores. For us in humans, we just consider basically the, the day to day uh, energy intake uh, as, you know, as the input of energy. And then the, the output of energy is mainly the exercise energy expenditure. Yeah. So the, the, the calculation or the definition of this, uh, can be defined mathematically in a very simple terms, which is the energy intake minus the exercise energy expenditure normalized uh, to the fat-free mass, which is the more metabolically active uh, tissue. Normally we say, yes, sorry. I was gonna say, I was gonna jump in and say, I guess this is where a lot of the papers and discussion really jumps off, doesn't it? Because that idea of being able to calculate something so cleanly from a direct standpoint, a mathematical standpoint. And when we go from the lab into the field, you know, there are obviously, as you know, those complexities that come up. So could, can you talk us through, you know, a few areas like being able to, you know, the pitfalls of measuring energy intake, you know, between food recalls and interviews and questionnaires, you know, how accurate are those really when we're looking at intakes for, for clients or athletes? Yeah, so um, one, one of the issues here is that, you know, a lot of these like really clear cut, you know, definitions of what is normal energy availability and what is low and so on comes from a lab-based studies where we can control very much exactly how much energy people are expending in the lab and how much people were giving them to, to, to uh, giving to our participants. The problems, you know, when you go to the field, it's like, this is incredibly, incredibly difficult to really quantify this uh, precisely. So there's, there's a lot of error in, in the measurement. So there's different ways of measuring energy intake and there's different ways of uh, measuring energy expenditure. Mm -hmm. um, of course, what we are more interested in is like exercise energy expenditure. So the energy expenditure are allocated from, from, from exercise only. And there's a lot of caveats of the, you know, the different methodologies of uh, dietary recalls. <clears throat> also, because when we want to see the effect of uh, energy availability or low energy availability, Normally, we need to know these over prolonged periods of time. And, you know, even if you can have a really controlled, you know, follow-up of dietary intake over a week, let's say, of a, of a, of a participant or of an athlete, um, probably even though in one week you can see some, some of the effects of this energy availability, you probably need like months of, of, of data to know exactly what is happening. And then it becomes very, very difficult to be precise in the measurements. Yeah, I was going to say, um, you know, this idea of when you're researching it and studying it, having some bigger gaps, really some bigger increases and drops in the amount of energy available. You know, the, the study you noted around male cyclists where on certain days there's an excess and other days there's a dramatic drop and there's actually, you know, no real difference in some of those biomarkers, which we'll talk about in a minute. But as we build this out over weeks and months, then it becomes potentially obviously more problematic not just from a performance standpoint, but obviously from a health standpoint. So are there some, you know, some low marker points that we should be looking out for with athletes where things start to go wrong? 
Um, well, yes, uh, yes, and and no. So <laughs> we have some some data. You know, there's there's a lot of data sort of from cross-sectional studies where we pick populations that we think they are they, they might have been exposed to low energy availability. There are like some clear markers of you know being exposed to, to low energy availability. And we have some data from experimental studies, which are quite, you know, quite short in time, where this uh, low energy availability is well controlled. Mm. Um, so, you know, uh, tr traditionally, the, the, the way in which uh, low energy availability was kind of detected in, in sort of the, the, the symptoms observed in particularly in female athletes, which was the, the, yeah. the, the first uh, type of athletes where this was studied, was basically bone mineral density and menstrual function there was this is you know the, the, the female athlete triad which considers the coexistence of low energy availability low bone mineral density and alteration of uh, menstrual cycle um, basically points towards these these very important symptoms of, of chronic low energy availability yeah, of and I suppose course. that's after that's the end of the spectrum, isn't it? Over time of getting exactly. to those points, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So that's that's sort of when you see that it's a bit too late. <laughs> so <laughs> we're going off the cliff at that point. Yes, yeah. yes. So that you know, there's there's a, a cascade of events. So you, the you know, the the, the first thing that responds in in your body typically is your 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 metabolism and your uh, sort of your hormones. So these things seem to, to be the, the ones that first to start to pick up that you're in like low energy availability. Yeah. Um, we so don't, not consuming enough or training too hard or typically a combination of both, right? Yeah, exactly. So the, the, we didn't go very much into detail there, but the way to, yeah, to reduce energy availability is either keep eating the same that you eat every day and then train, train harder, train, train, spend more energy in exercise uh, or just eat less or a combination of both. So you can have someone who, you know, doesn't change the diet. They are effectively eating normally, uh, yeah. but they're, they're still, their body is like, oh, this is like some sort of starvation response, even yeah. though, you know, the athlete is not starving. So training for an ultra marathon and you haven't adjusted the, the intake. Pretty much. For example. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And, and, and this is something that we see on the, on the field, you know, when we start to be really detailed in the quantification of, uh, intake and expenditure it's, it's very clear that when when athletes expend a lot of energy they don't really sort of compensate for the exercise energy expenditure yeah yeah and, and some of that earlier work done in in women where you know you're looking at four or five days of this energy availability being you know sort of roughly less than 30 kcal uh, per kilogram fat-free mass per day and then even then we're starting to see some some shifts in some of those endocrine and metabolic markers would that be correct Correct. Yes. So uh, I think that there is, as I was saying before, that there is some sort of a chain of events that starts with the metabolic and endocrine responses. So the first things that you normally see to respond to low energy availability are things like leptin seems to be very sensitive, but normally it's hard to measure in or get it measured in a, in a commercial lab. And most of them don't do leptin. It's more for research. Mm -hmm. But, you know, things like uh, FT3 or like uh, T3, uh, triiodothyronine, yeah. uh, that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's one that, that seems to be quite, quite sensitive, uh, particularly in, in, in females. T4, not so much. IGF1 seems to be uh, quite sensitive as well. 
so these are, are parameters that are, are good, you know, to, to look uh, into when you are potentially working with someone that might be exposed to periods of, of lower energy availability. This yeah, I was going to say, it's interesting on the thyroid front, obviously in athletes, we tend to run, docs will tend to run more of the T3 as well, but oftentimes in a recreational athlete or client, um, you know, it's only T4 that might be run. And so yes. can you talk through, obviously the thyroid hormones are the main regulators here of, of a resting metabolic rate. Um, yes, can, exactly. Can you talk through that? Why, why T3 potentially not T4 so much? So T3 is like the, the more sort of active um, mm -hmm. um, ho hormone. So, you know, t t t T4 is convert converted to T3 in different tissues, mm -hmm. um, part particularly in, um, let me see if I remember well, <laughs> I don't have my notes here with me, no, but no, you know, the, the, the liver is quite important. And, and in, I think yeah. it's a part of the, of the um, of, of the of the brain as well. There's a conversion from from T T4 to to T3. Yeah. Um, so basically, what you measure when you measure T4 is whether you know the, 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 if there is a less or more circulating of the of inactive hormone. That if you have hypothyroidism, yeah. then that that might be something that you can detect. But in this case, it's, it's different. It's more like the conversion from one to the other. So when you are in low energy availability, it's the, less of a conversion of T, uh, T4 to T3, and even some studies see a tendency and increase in T4 uh, with, low, with low energy availability, which is interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And, and it's interesting when I look at the, the, you know, the numbers in your paper around, you know, even at 25 kcal per kilogram fat-free mass for that kind of five-day period, we're seeing decreases um, in a sort of a dose-response relationship going down towards 20, 19, 18. So that's, uh, at that point, even if we're picking it up, that's the pretty you know, low intake for, for that week or that five days, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. And, you know, some of the things that are kind of tricky here is when we see changes in these hormones that uh, might be subclinical. So it's, it's hard to, you know, run a test in this hormone and say mm -hmm. like, oh, you know, like this person. Definitely definitely this. <laughs> yes, because, you know, I think what is important to consider is the within individual variations in the hormone because there might still be within a, a clinical uh, uh, values, but the, the, the thing is that it's dropped, you know, yeah. that's, I think Relative that is- Relative to that athlete or individual, right? Yes, exactly. And I, and I think, you know, this, this is what it makes, makes it hard to pick up sometimes because uh, most of the time it's just one test, you know, every now and then, and you go like, oh no, it's fine. It's within the, 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 the clinical range. But when you look at, you know, when you have the opportunity to look at many athletes or many individuals as we do in, in the research studies, that's de definitely going down. So I think, you know, for, for in this case, it's important to know the, the error of measurement of, of the hormones that you're measuring, uh, how much it normally varies within that, 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 that person and so on. So it requires a, a bit of, you know, like attention to detail, but it's, it's something that can, can give some, some guidance before, you know, things... Uh, get disrupted further. The other yeah, I mean, parameter. Like, oh, go ahead. Yes. Yeah. I was going to say it's. Sorry. I was going to say it's interesting because it's um you know with any kind of complex condition or chronic health condition you know we're always sort of looking for these constellation of markers that help us to paint the picture versus having that real you know acute one single marker that will tell us the story and so um, I was just going to circle back to the conversation you mentioned there about leptin so obviously another important regular regulator of energy metabolism. And that has some significant drops when you get down towards that 30 kcal per kg fat-free mass. 
Yeah, Can yeah. Can you talk a bit about leptin and its role in this all this yes. whole story? Yes, you're you're testing my analogy uh, <laughs> <my> knowledge. <laughs> yeah, so um, leptin is actually most likely upstream of T uh, three. Actually, I I, mm -hmm. I believe that it would be you know T three or the, the response of T three would be more like a response of uh, to, to, to leptin, leptin. Yeah. sort of thing. Um, you know, le leptin is is very sensitive to to fasting. Uh, and it's also very, very sensitive to carbohydrate intake. So you, you would normally see when you get someone to fast, um, leptin goes down very, very quick. You know, mm -hmm. the, um, leptin also changes with changes in the, the, the amount of fat tissue. So it's one of these hormones that is kind of regulated by acute changes in diet and by chronic changes in sort of body composition. So it's uh, a lot of people think that you know leptin just changes when you lose fat because it's a, a, a hormone released by fat but it, the, the acute nutritional status is also important to to for changes in circulating leptin so, so yeah uh, so you know you can see very quick changes in leptin with reduced uh, uh, energy availability and, and well le leptin basically uh, has an, an effect in the central nervous system you know it's, it has an effect on the um in, on, on the uh, hypothalamus and the pituitary axis yep. and that that affects you know the, thi the thyroid axis and the uh, gonadal axis as well so it seems that really might be sort of a master switch you know it would be there are some studies showing that when there is a, a replacement of, of leptin in the face of uh, weight loss in obese individuals then some of the responses or the sort of the thermogenic uh, adaptation responses are damped so it seems that it's quite an important uh, hormone when it goes under the um the sort of the baseline level yeah for sure and if we if we then circle back to igf1 which you touched on obviously important for protein synthesis cell proliferation um you know with that low energy availability we're seeing these increased amounts of of, of growth hormone that can occur but that's actually quite low intakes i mean now we're getting down to 20 kcal per kg fat-free mass yeah. You know, is that more of a survival switch then that's being activated when someone is having that? I mean, that, that feels like from the, from the outside anyway, it feels like almost starvation mode at that point, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, the whole thing is a starvation mode response, <laughs> yeah, sure, really. Sure. So, you know, the, the further the, down that, uh, that, that, that spectrum. Yeah. Yeah. So I think really low energy availability is uh, when, when you have someone who's training a lot and still eating, uh, you know, at, high amounts of, of food or normal amounts of, of food and energy is more like starvation response without the starvation, really. So it, it really is like a starvation response. So, you know, a lot of things that we study are really trying to, to understand the starvation response in people who are like uh, having, you know, normal intakes of, of food, but who are like uh, very physically active. So yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating to see these the different constellation of markers and you talk also about bone markers for resorption formation is there some potential there um for, for being able to pick this up as well yeah definitely so you know bone is this sort of tissue that it's uh, even though we think it's not it's, it's very much alive it's changing all the time so it's going like uh, synthesis and resorption all the time and it's mm -hmm. but it's, it's very very slow um so the 
you know, the, 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 this sort of a steady state that the bone is in, the, in which the, the synthesis is the same as the resorption. So the amount of, of the, the bone that we have is kind of the same all the time. Yeah. But, you know, when we get into this um, low energy availability or like sort of starvation response, uh, one of the things that the body kind of tries to save energy in is like this sort of synthesis of, of bone. And there are some markers like blood circulating uh, markers that, you know, can give us an idea of like whether this is changing or, or not. Um, so even though it would take months to, to be able to detect uh, like significant or meaningful, let's say, changes in, in bone metabolism or sorry, on, on, the, on the bone mass, mm -hmm. um, these markers, we can pick them up rather, rather quick, you know, within, within days of exposure. So we can see, oh, is this having an effect on sort of this synthesis or resorption process. So yeah, there are some, some markers that are, that are better than others, but you know, normally like beta CTX is a, is a, is a good one and uh, CPTX and, and so on. There's, there's a few osteocalcine and, and stuff. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's, it's really compelling, isn't it? From a clinician standpoint of being able to pick up some of these earlier markers rather than having to, to wait down the line for a DEXA scan or something that's going to show you that there's some issues with, with, with bone mineral density loss. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this is sort of one of one of the points that we tried to make on a recent review that we wrote for the European Journal of Sports Science, where we are saying like, yeah, of course, you know, when you when you don't see a menstrual cycle or you see like bone mineral density low, it's like a bit too late. So maybe you can pick some of these responses earlier on with, you know, looking at a series of uh, blood born markers and you know it's, as you were saying before you know sometimes people want their one, one marker yeah. that tells everything and it's difficult because you know you might need to sort of tick a few boxes of things being like subclinically lows to have an idea of kind of what's what's going on so it's 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 a tricky one to to pick up yeah it sort of gets back to that sort of coach's eye or practitioner's eye or you know, what not being able to really appreciate all the different factors in the athlete's life to then start to, to your, to your point, put, put your finger on the fact that, okay, we're seeing some real relative big changes in certain areas, whether it's some the performance, the training, the recovery, or some of these, these biomarkers. Yeah. Um, now what about in men versus women? Cause menses is obviously a marker that, you know, female athletes are, are constantly monthly being reminded if this is, if this, if, if that's, um, if menses is regular, whereas in men, it's only it's more new that we're getting more appreciation for this picture of low energy availability and what it might be doing to male athletes yeah yeah that's that's a great point so because of the history or the legacy in the research of in this topic you know there's been a lot of more more research in females than in males and since about you know 2014 when this like red s model sort of comes up people start going like hey you know this might be happening in males too <laughs> yeah. and so what's going on here and the thing is that because males don't have a menstrual cycle it's hard, harder to see and mm -hmm. um, also it appears that men might be more resistant and resilient to low energy availability so from the little data that we have it seems that it's it's harder to disrupt the sort of the endocrine system or the met metabolism in, in general in men with a low energy availability than, than in females but yeah of course uh, they they are susceptible to the effects of uh, acute and chronic low energy availability a marker that might be good for males is actually uh, free testosterone um, yeah. 
even though we don't have a you know real you know experimental data showing this like a series of like cross-sectional studies seem to suggest that this is like a like quite sensitive marker to to low energy availability yeah so it's interesting the, yeah i mean we see that sort of lack of recovery and lack of sleep or overtraining you know insufficient energy intake all these things can really start to to impact something like free testosterone right yes yes totally and you know i'm i'm saying i'm, I'm being very careful here because um, a lot <laughs> yeah, of, of no, these sure. um, uh, parameters can be affected by a lot of things it's not just energy um, but you know there is this saying that when you when you uh, when the tool that you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail so <laughs> yeah, sure. if we think like yeah. if we think just about energy then like everything might be you know oh, this is energy availability or that's energy availability and in fact you know there's a lot of things that can disrupt uh, the endocrine response and you mentioned one good one there that is sleep so you know it would be interesting to see where these things are affected by sleep or not and to what extent they interact with energy probably there's some sort of synergism there but, you know, um, I think it's still important to do the, the, um, the experimental trials, you know, with, with men and try to see whether, you know, to what extent some of these endocrine parameters respond to energy alone and not other parameters. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's seemingly an increasingly important topic, even amongst men. And I know with athletes that I consult with, you know, they're humans too, and they, they, think about body composition or if somebody on the team is leaner than a certain athlete, then all of a sudden or scores quote unquote better on a certain body composition test, then whether they're admitting it or not, they sometimes alter their diet to, to try to get leaner or get into these states of low energy availability without realizing. And then of course we get these trickle down effects on, on performance recovery. I was curious in all your experience in the places around the world you've been, you know, there's some examples or some, some stories that, that come to mind when thinking about how, you know, low energy availability can affect you know, male or female athletes. Um, if it's different around the world, you mean, or? Yeah, just in, in your experiences, like uh, in running the studies or, you know, what are some of the, the things that maybe we don't appreciate and that don't make it into papers that you've, you've picked up along the way or observations that you've, um, well, I've had a lot of observations also as an athlete myself, I, I was competing at a sort of decent level in, you know, in different places. And I always, you know, you're kind of always the first experimental subject when you're there doing you go, these right? things. And, you know, when you're doing road, road cycling at a, at a fairly good competitive level and you are, you know, you know that watts per kilo are, are important and you try to, to drop weight and, you know, you do all these things, you get like a lot of insights by experimenting on, on yourself. So mm -hmm. I, I suppose I have a lot of insights on this, but I try to steer away a, a little bit from, from anecdotes, you know, it's just like, yeah. um, um, even though like I, I love anecdotes and, you know, insights that this might provide to do like a, a, a bit of uh, f further uh, an uh, analysis of, you know, what's going on and, you know, they are great to sort of generate uh, curiosity for, yeah. for yeah, scientific yeah. inquiry. Um, I would be very careful to draw con con conclusions from, you know, even my, my, uh, uh, my, own, <laughs> my own experience, which can yeah. be tainted by, uh, you know, my, yeah, my um, successes or, or failures, let's say. So now I, I think it's, I think it's super interesting. And I think there's, there's a lot to, uh, to be understood of wh whether it is the actual energy availability or the acute availability of substrate you know mm -hmm. i think that's that's something that is that is very important to be able to di differentiate 
because some people get into this, you know, oh yeah, I'm like, you know, low energy availability, low energy availability, this and that, yeah. but then but maybe they, they are in low energy availability all the time, but they are also not fueling properly for a, a race or for a um, training session. So it's not just the energy availability as a whole, but it can be the, 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 the availability of substrate for a, for a particular session or, or race. So it's sometimes it's hard to, to say it's all one, one, one thing or, or the other. Yeah, I mean, it's a great point to sort of be always going back to examining the, you know, the entire athlete or client's day and, and, and how they're fueling regularly. And then, of course, how they're fueling during specific training sessions, to your point, if they're these more intense sessions or especially, again, if they're doing Ironman or ultra, ultra marathon training, now we're getting in some real long, slower, but longer duration work. Yeah. Um, so yeah. and on that note, you guys touch on sort of protein and carbohydrates a little bit, the effects there uh, in states of low energy availability or how that might impact. Can you touch on that? Yeah, yeah, of course. I think uh, one of the things that I like about this, this topic of energy availability is that it's kind of a crossroads of a lot of different important areas in sports nutrition. And that's why I find it so fascinating because it's not just the energy, it's the, the, the availability of substrate, how you stimulate you know, protein syn synthesis or not with, 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 with protein intake and so on. So you know, one, one of the things that is kind of uh, important for most sports, we think, is to maintain lean mass. And we know that uh, a, a low energy availability decreases uh, myofibrillar protein synthesis, as, we, as we've shown in, in a paper that we published in the uh, um, AJP Endo um, a few years ago. So that one was as, as part of my, my PhD. And, you know, we know that increasing protein intake sort of is able to, to rescue um, this uh, sort of uh, decrease in, in myofibrillar protein synthesis. So um, even though you might say, okay, you know, this amount of energy availability has this effect on your physiology or your endocrine system and so on, it's very important to consider also the percentage of, of, of different macronutrients or the effect of different macronutrients on the actual physiological response. I mean, I'm, I'm saying micronutrients on the diet, of course. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I was going to say, I mean, obviously with glycogen acting as a training regulator and, and periodizing carbohydrates becoming much more popular and understood and the athletes now trying to train more with with lower carbohydrate availability you know there could be the potential there i mean perhaps walk us through the benefits there and then the potential for you know basically under fueling if we do it too frequently during some of these more intense sessions or as you alluded to earlier you know during race day yeah, yeah, no, of course. So, you know, one, one of the, 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 the current theories or ideas is that training with low skeletal muscle glycogen can potentially enhance the oxidative capacity of skeletal muscle. That, when repeated over time, then the, this leads to an enhanced response in the sort of muscle to, to, to generate uh, energy via oxidative pathways. Yeah. Um, the problem with this is that uh, if you do it chronically and you do it, you know, uh, yeah, if you don't sort of paradise this. Well, you fall this, in love with it. You do it every yes, day. It becomes uh, a problem. Yes. Yeah. So on, the, on, the ones, on the one side, because you, 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 you have low energy uh, and, you know, you have all these uh, negative responses, potentially negative responses to, to chronic low energy availability, but also because you get really bad at burning carbs. <laughs> and yeah. then, you know, we know that burning carbs is important for high intensity sport and most race winning moves in pretty much 
any sport unless it's like probably like ultra marathon like a, a, a yeah, yeah like long and slow yeah long and slow yeah. exactly and then you you need to have the capacity to to burn this this carb so you know for these two reasons it seems that you know we might not be the the, the, the best idea one one of the things that we researched during my postdoc was what happens you know when you uh, train you do like a, a sleep low protocol are you familiar yep. with the sleep would, would your listeners yeah list, list, yeah, list, we'll, list, we'll, yeah just review it for folks but yeah it'd be great yeah so a sleep low protocol is, is basically this uh, training protocol where you train hard on the, in the evening of, of day one let's say so you you use a lot of your muscle glycogen and then on the morning of day two you train again at lower intensity or a, or a session that might not be so tasking Basically, you cannot make it very tasking because your skeletal muscle glycogen is, <laughs> is low. Because on the more on the on the evening before, after your hard session, you really didn't put back all the carbs necessary to resynthesize all the skeletal muscle uh, so glycogen. Like Protein-based meal with some fats and some probably leafy greens and veggies, right? Something like that. Something like that would do the job. For example, yeah, yeah. So you can have a little bit of carbs, but you know, don't like don't top, top it's up. Not, the it's not the pasta meal that we should be. <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah, and one of the things that you, we looked into was like, okay, let, let's look at what happens if, uh, for example, you have a low carbohydrate meal after that evening session, but you put all the energy that you use on the session with fat. And say like, oh, you know, if, if energy availability is important to, to, to modulate the response, uh, if we put back the energy, then we, you know, you should be seeing like an enhanced response on the morning after because that, that energy was, was put back. And, you know, if energy is holding you back from, uh, from you know, the, the muscle to adapt, then, then can be a, a, a good thing. Interestingly, you know, what we observed, so we did this thing where we got our uh, participants, which were like uh, well, well-trained athletes, you know, we have like a national central champion in the, in the mix. And we're like really, really good, good athletes, uh, most, mostly cyclists. Great athletes, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was really, really good. Um, and, you know, we took muscle biopsies after the, the second session in, in the morning. We looked at a lot, a lot of markers of you know, mitochondrial biogenesis, like intracellular signaling and gene expression and so on. And interestingly, there, there didn't seem to be any differences between group and even some markers that um, are related to mitochondrial biogenesis was, were potentially actually um, enhanced in the, in the low energy group. So the group that didn't have all the, 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 the energy in the form of fat. Yeah. In fact, uh, the group that had the all the energy back, mostly in the form of fat, and when they had a post-exercise uh, meal with the typical post-exercise um, sort of protein plus carbohydrates meal, they see they saw like a impaired uh, glucose regulation just oh. after one one meal, which for me was mind blowing. Was like wow, there was just one yeah. meal, and you see this sort of impaired uh, glucose regulation, which was very very interesting. So. You know, as much as we can talk about, you know, thresholds of energy availability or not and so on, mm -hmm. I think it's very important to consider the, the, the timing and amounts of, of macronutrients intake also to in interpret, you know, what, what might be going on in terms of the physiological responses. Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, like to sum it up for someone who sort of having those periods a few periods of low of training and with low carb availability could be beneficial, but 
to your point earlier, we've got to really watch how much we're doing this because we can start to elicit some, some serious issues, especially if you're really trying to push that upper end because we don't want to be compromising carbohydrate oxidation when we're trying to win the race, right? Yeah, of course. And, and I think, you know, it's a, as everything, it's really a, a balancing act. You know, I think yeah. one, one of the things that uh, most people try to, uh, or to, most people find difficult in, in sports nutrition and in life in general, probably is like balance. Um, mm. And I think, you know, a lot of people get really obsessed with either dropping weight or, um, you know, doing something just at the one thing. And sometimes it's just, you need to mix and match things and you have to really assess you know where you're standing and where you want to go and if that's important and so on so uh you know in a, we know that in a, in a lot of sports uh weight management is is very important so we could mm -hmm. we could think of all the complications that come together with these like eating disorders and so on but i think it's also important to understand you know to what extent or at what point uh, some of the effects of low energy availability become negative and to and at what point they actually are something that can be beneficial for performance. And I think this is, this is very difficult, um, but I think it's uh, important to, to keep in mind that, you know, athletes um, sometimes do need to lose weight and that's part of a sport. Yeah, hundred percent. And definitely those sports that have the, the weight making categories, et cetera, can, um, it's interesting because there's the, potentially the most application there, but then to your point, we've got to be mindful of how we apply it. So we don't, uh, start to get some of these adverse effects now. Yes. What about the future of research in this area? Now you're at the forefront of it. Can you walk us through without giving away any, any trade secrets? What, uh, <laughs> What, what some areas my, of potential my, interest might be my coming secret down the golden gems yeah you know, exactly. i'm not gonna give up my, my ideas uh, no look i think that there's um, there's a lot to be done first on 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 male athletes you know try to understand uh, better what's happening in males and uh, i feel a little bit ashamed of saying this to be honest because um, that is, it's, it's so uneven the amount of research that there's on, on yeah, I was going to say, yeah, it's probably the uh, only area. Where there's not it's probably the only else. area. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I'm, I'm, I'm all for, for, for equality. So I'm like, you know, supporting the, 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 the you know, female research whenever yeah, I can catching and, up and so on. Yes. So I said, like, okay, for, but for this area, you know, something that we need to understand a little bit better is, is, is this. I think uh, we also need potentially more prolonged periods of, you know, sort of controlled or measured energy availability in athletes mm -hmm. and see, you know, what different parameters change, change, change with, with, with time. Um, I think we need to understand uh, what's happening really on the field because we assume a lot of things are happening in the field, but, you know, we don't really have like, a lot of data. Mm -hmm. um, I think this is, this is very important. We have some, some interesting studies in the, in the pipeline there. Uh, I think it would be really interesting to, to look more into potential markers so to define better what markers we can measure to say like, yeah, this person, you know, is like, this is low energy and, you know, yeah. because it takes like that, that and that box, uh, then yes, that, you know, we have, we can say that with a degree of certainty, this, this person is, is under fueling. Uh, but again, I think it's, this is complex, again, because, you know, the way our physiology works, we respond to stresses and mm. energetic stress might be a stress that is necessary to uh, drive adaptation. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not saying, well, chronically put someone under stress because this is, you know, we know that when you do that chronically, it's also not good. So again, I think it's a balancing act because... 
um, and we need to understand to what to, to what point this sort of degree of stress can generate an adaptive response and when it's too much. Yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Just like exercise, of, you know, whether it's strength training, aerobic training, inducing that stress to, just to the point where we can get that adaptation, get that you know inflammatory response that we're after to be able to adapt and grow stronger and fitter. But if we push it too far, if we don't, if if we that that training load is too high and too intense for too long, then all of a sudden, you know, too much of a good thing. And the interesting how you know the same can be applied on the nutrition front as well. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, and another thing that I think is interesting to look into when I was saying, you know, looking at, you know, parameters, I think there's a future to look at like resting metabolic rate as a, yeah. as a, as a parameter potentially for being able to detect, detect whether a person is undergoing, you know, more prolonged or more severe periods of uh, uh, low energy availability. I think that's and something it, really interesting. Absolutely. Is there certain drops that one might expect or predict i mean i know it's obviously early days but yeah well so uh, again this has been more research in, in females and you know there's uh, really in, interesting studies uh, by mary jane de souza from the um from a university in the u.s like the name is not coming to my head uh, it's, it's not the yukon what, what is the university is ah, i forgot now i've got um, three small kids at home so i spend most of my days <laughs> trying to remember things um yeah i, I, I can't remember i was gonna go uh, last year and covid hit and then i couldn't visit the the, the lab there so anyway um yeah, so she's, she's doing like really, really interesting research in this area. And, you know, one of the things that they show is that the, the energy sort of conservation markers, you know, all these markers that we were talking about before, they're kind of correlated to the severity of the, um, the, the decrease in resting metabolic rate. So yeah. one of the things that it's normally compared against the current resting metabolic rate of females is the um, resting metabolic rate measured against the predicted. Yep. So a cutoff value normally used of 0.9. So if you know a measured resting metabolic rate is uh, less than 90% of that predicted, that might be an indicator that you know there is a, a degree of severity yeah uh, of of uh, sort of chronic exposure to 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 low energy availability in men this is less clear but i wouldn't be surprised that the the, the threshold is thereabouts too yeah good opportunity to revisit the fueling the training plan the recovery and all that to be able to see yeah uh, what what one uncovers but uh jose i could pick your brain here all afternoon but uh, i appreciate you carving out some time today if people want to stay connected with you and, and your research and your work what's the best place to find you yeah, so I'm on Twitter. I, uh, I, I, I'm not extremely active on Twitter, but I tweet things that are mostly related to this topic and other topics in sports nutrition. And um, the, my username or handle, to use the yeah. right term, is uh, JL Areta. Yeah. Uh, so J-L-A-R-E-T-A. And yeah, you can find me there, follow me, and you know, I, I share stuff there. Or just, you know, if you find things, you know, if you're curious about anything, what I'm saying, just reach out over email and you know, I'll, I'll do my best to reply. Fabulous. Well, we'll put that up uh, as well as your papers in the, in the show notes. And uh, again, really appreciate you covering up some time today. No, thank you so much for the invitation, Mark. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Performance Nutrition Podcast. You can watch the full video interview or short clips over on YouTube at Performance Nutrition Podcast. 
If you enjoyed the content, please head over to iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform, subscribe, and leave us a comment in the reviews. It's a big, big help to the show. Shout out to everyone. My new book, Peak 40, which was released last month, We've already hit bestseller in five different categories. So massive, massive thank you to everyone. And if you're a coach out there, practitioner looking for some simple heuristics and solutions to manage the madness and hecticness of midlife, then be sure to check that out. And you can also listen to the new short form podcast, the Peak 40 Podcast. Awesome. Have a fantastic week. Any questions or comments, reach out on social media at Dr. Bubs, Twitter, Instagram. Happy to answer those questions. Take care. The Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcast endeavors to provide accurate and helpful information to listeners. These podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Dr. Bubbs Performance Podcasts.